This morning, I want to think about Isaiah 57, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to that chapter, Isaiah 57, and the subject here is war and peace. I think we'd all agree that war is very destructive, but despite the fact that we all know that, war and violence and bloodshed shed seem to be a constant in our lives. At any given point in history, there's some part of the world or many parts of the world that are engaged in a struggle of life and death because of war. War is man-made. We bring it on ourselves and we bemoan it and wail about it, but we continue it. Why is that? The monk and poet Thomas Merton said, The human race today is like an alcoholic who knows that drink will destroy him and yet always has good reasons why he must continue drinking. Such is man in his fatal addiction to war. He is not really capable of seeing a constructive alternative. I heard one time that um, during World War II, President Warren G. Harding stood on a dock in New Jersey as the caskets of the dead Americans who fought were being returned to their homeland. And as they were being unloaded, he said, it must never happen again. One of the most powerful men in the world standing there, seeing the fallen soldiers under his command, it must never happen again. That was during World War I. And as we all know, there was a World War II. There were many wars that followed and there are wars now. So despite that man's power and his sincerity, I'm sure in that moment, he could do nothing to stop it. We're constantly engaged in self-destructive war. In this lesson, we're thinking about spiritual war. And the question of the lesson is, are you at war with God or you or are you at peace with Him? What's your relationship to God? Is it war or is it peace? Certainly all that we know about war repels us, and we know we cannot win a battle against God, yet we sin, and every act of sin is an act of war against God. Who doesn't long for peace? We all long for peace. Our souls yearn for it. And in the text, Isaiah lays out the difference between those who are at war with God and who are at peace with God. And I want to I get you to pay attention to what he says. Because if we look at the conditions of those who are at war with God, and we look at what it's like to be at peace with God and what it offers and how you can get there through the eyes of Isaiah, then maybe we can find that peace that we long for, but we continually strive against. So let's start with the category of war. That takes up most of the first part of this chapter, beginning in verse 3. And there are many ways to develop this. I want to do it by looking at the six rhetorical questions in the first section of Isaiah 57. If you just analyze these questions, one right after the other, you see the condition of those who are at war with God. 
And the first one we come to is at the beginning of verse 4. And here's the question. Look at it. Whom, God asked through Isaiah, whom are you mocking? New American Standard Bible says, with whom do you jest? So it's a, a joking mockery, a taunt. The verb suggests they were having fun at someone else's expense, either God's or perhaps the righteous people, Isaiah describes in verses 1 and 2. Do you like to be the butt of other people's jokes? Most people don't enjoy that. I think all of us know what that's like. To be made fun of. To be mocked. And you have to learn how to handle that in life because if you don't know how to laugh at yourself, you're, you're never going to make any good relationships because everybody gets picked at. I took a uh, trip out west when I was, at, right after I graduated from college. Five of us, five college guys, right out of college, we took my dad's uh, old Dodge van out west and went camping in South Dakota and Montana and Wyoming and Colorado. And we had a great time, but uh, I realized that I wasn't going to have many opportunities in my life to, to go out and be out in that beautiful place. So I got up early every morning. And uh, I went hiking around and looking around, and, and the rest of my friends, they slept in every morning. I just didn't understand that. And it kind of got on their nerves that I was getting up so early. So they came up with this nickname for me that they use to this day, Rooster. Rooster's up. There goes Rooster. What are you going to do this morning, Rooster. You're making too much noise. I heard it all the time. And I got irritated. I let it get to me. And uh, it was no fun for me until I learned to laugh at myself. And you know, what we have to do when we're being mocked is realize that we're not perfect, that there's something you can learn from people making fun of you. There's something in that that's true and you can learn something from it. At the very least, you can learn how to ignore unfair criticisms. And you throw the rest of the garbage away. But you don't mock God. You see, it's different with God because God is perfect. There's nothing to mock in the Lord God. And so the question here of those at war with him is, whom are you mocking? Take just a moment and think about who you're picking at and who you're making fun of. And is there anything really there to laugh about? Whom are you mocking? These are the mourners at the house of Jairus, whose little girl lay dead on her bed. The mourners who laughed when Jesus came into the room with Peter, James, and John and said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but, but sleeping. They laughed at him. They laughed until he took her by the hand and said, Little girl, arise. And her eyes opened, and she stood up alive. These are the mockers, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders on Calvary who mocked Jesus. He saved others. He can't save himself. 
He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. They laughed until three days later when he arose from the dead. Whom are you mocking? Those who mock God are at war with God. Similarly, the next question asks, against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? More mockery. The next question is we analyze these individuals at war with God. Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? It's verses 4 and 5. Those who war against God are idol worshipers. And I mean that about the individuals in the immediate context of Isaiah, and I'm talking about those today who are at war with God. They're idol worshipers. They put someone or something before God. Anybody who does that is an idolater. Even atheism is a religion. Ken Ham writes that one of the definitions of religion in the dictionary is a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor, and faith. Do atheists have a belief system? You better believe they do. They believe in origins. They believe this world came about through naturalistic processes, although they've never seen that happen. That's a belief system. They believe in no God, even though they cannot prove there is no God. They believe that individuals ought to live a particular way they have values, do they not? Do they not preach those values and point fingers at people of faith and say that we're wrong in doing certain things? There are all kinds of belief systems and all kinds of religions and all kinds of idolatry out there. There are many gods in our society today. There's hedonism and humanism. There's atheism. Any form of idolatry is a false religion and it's nonsensical and it's an act of war. Look at how contradictory the behavior of these idol worshipers are in Isaiah 57, 4 and 5. This question that is asked reveals that number one, they were engaged in sexually immoral practices of the fertility cults. Baal was a fertility god. And so they would engage in these practices presumably to, to have children. But then at the same time, they engaged in human sacrifice. So they worshiped the fertility gods to get children, and they worshiped the fire gods to sacrifice them. And that's the kind of inner turmoil and contradiction that's characteristic of those who worship idols. Now, with God, there is peace and there is harmony. There is unity and order. Only Christ makes sense. It's in Him, Paul says, that all things hold together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Look at the next question. This is number 4. Verse 6. Shall I relent for these things? 
these things has to do with the idolatry that he's been describing. And God says, shall I relent? The word relent means be consoled. And the idea is that in the light of Israel's idolatry, should God take pity on them? Should he rest from his wrath and reach out and comfort them? Would anybody in his right mind show mercy to people who are behaving this way and rebelling in the way that they are rebelling? Any reasonable person would call for vengeance here, not pity. That's the point of the question. Number five, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? That's verse 11. Their motivation for siding with idols in the war against God seems to be dread and fear. Look what the fear of Israel's enemies did to them. Three things. They lied, he said. Number two, they did not remember God. And number three, they did not lay their sins to heart. So maybe going along to get along is not the best strategy because it puts you on the wrong side of the battle line. And trying to get along with their idolatrous neighbors and engaging in their religion over God's, they wound up fighting against the most powerful being in the universe, the creator and sustainer of life. You can't make friends with the world and be on God's side. This is what James is saying in James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then finally, the sixth question is we study the condition of those at war with God. Last part of verse 11. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? The message reads here, I don't make a scene. What God is saying is, I've been quiet. I've been silent. I've allowed you to go on and on. You've had a choice. But they've interpreted this choice as maybe God's non-existence or, or maybe... God's disinterest, maybe his acceptance. Maybe they believed that his silence meant that he condoned their behavior. It's the same problem that uh, the scoffers in Peter's day had. If you look over at 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about them and they're, they're behaving the exact same way that you see the people behaving in the days of Isaiah. Their, their scoffing is depicted... In verse 4, where Peter says, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing has happened to make us be afraid that Christ might be returning. And nothing has happened to make us think the world could ever come to an end. This is the fallacy of uniformity. They, they think the world has always been the same. Now, Peter reminds them of the flood that once disrupted the world, and the same God who brought the flood, he said, is going to destroy the world. And in verse 9, he explains God's silence. He explains 
why God has held his peace, to use the words of Isaiah. He says, the Lord does not count slowness. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't mistake the peace of the Lord for disinterest or non-existence or slowness or slack. The Lord sees, He knows, and He will win the war. His vengeance will come, and the peace for the moment is there against the enemies because of His patience and His desire that all be saved. He's longing for us to repent. But He won't be silent forever. Look at verse 12 back in Isaiah 57. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. Now, don't mistake righteousness here as true righteousness. Later on, Isaiah will say in Isaiah 64 verse 6, all their righteousness is like a polluted rag. He's talking about the righteousness of man, and he will show this sham righteousness for what it is when the time is right, in his own time. So it's best for us to get right with God and be on his side because he will win the war. Now, having looked at those six questions and understanding the condition of those at war with God, I want to draw your attention to the last two verses of the chapter, which kind of summarizes where they wind up and their state of being and what it's like to be at war with God. Look at verses 20 and 21. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked can no more be, be still than the waves of the sea. Now, that's not what our culture is telling us. Now, the world says, if you've got inner turmoil, it's because there is a truth inside of you that you're ignoring. You're not being true to yourself. It's because your parents have told you to be different from the way you feel like you should be, or your church has told you that the way you feel or your temptations are wrong. And all they're doing is they're trying to twist you and change you into a different person. And so for the last several decades, what we've been hearing is ignore the Bible, ignore the church, ignore your parents, and, and just do what you think is right, whatever your preference is, give in to it. And that sea that's churning within you, that anxiety, that panic, that war within, it'll calm and the waters will be still. You've heard that, right? That's the advice our young people are getting. We've had enough time to experiment with that advice to see the results. Look it up. You have access to the internet. Look it up and see how the mental health of our young people are doing. We're at the brink of the worst mental health crisis 
in the history of this country. Suicide rates are up. Anxiety and depression is up. And we've been following society's advice. Bucking tradition, jettisoning the scriptures, ignoring our parents, leaving the church. Is it healing us? Is it calming the waters? No, the waves continue as always. They churn, they boil, and we're anxious, and we're suffering more than ever before. We live in a prosperous country. Most people have enough to eat. They're comfortable, but they're sick inside. What is it? They're at war with the wrong person. They've made the wrong enemies. God is not the enemy. And he's certainly not the one you want to be at war with. The wicked are like the waves of the tossing sea. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. That's the war. Let's turn to the peace. The second part of Isaiah 57, except for those last two verses that I read, has to do with this peace. And there's three things that he says about this peace and its effects. He talks about its, its effects in life, at death, and after death. Let's start with in life. Number one, he says, in life, God makes a way for us when we make room for him. Look at verses 14 and 15. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. First of all, he says that God makes a way for us. Verse 14 has some language there about building roads, building a way. Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from our people's way. God will make a way for you. It's very similar to Isaiah's language in a more familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which the Lord applied to John the Baptist where every valley shall be brought up and every mountain shall be made low and he will prepare a way for the Lord. But here the way is not being prepared for the Lord, it's being prepared, it's being prepared for his people. The Lord is making the way for us. It's very similar to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. God will remove every obstacle out of your way from fulfilling his, his righteousness. We're told that no temptation has overtaken us that is not common to man, and that God is faithful, and he will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to endure but will provide a way to escape that we may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 
We're told that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God will make a way for you. But there's a condition. Note, Isaiah's point is this. In life, he makes a way for us when we make room for him. You see, when you put yourself on the throne of your own heart, there's no room for God in there. You have to take yourself out of the way before he can come and dwell with you and provide that, that way that's free of obstacles. The greatest obstacle in the way of the Lord is your own selfish ambition, your will, your heart. You've got to get out of God's way for him to come and bring peace into your life. Look at verse 15 again. God who dwells in the high and holy place also dwells in the low spirit. Think about that again, the, the paradox. God who dwells in the heavens, which are high, also dwells in a broken and contrite heart of a humble man. Because humility is the way you get out of the way so God can come in. God will make a way in your life if you will just make room for him. Oh, we always have our reasons, right? God says, I want you to believe and trust in my son, Jesus. And we say, my sin is too great. Not even the blood of Christ could wipe away my sin. He says... I want you to, to be baptized. I want you to be lowered into the water just as my son was lowered into the belly of the earth. And then I want your old man of sin to die there. And then I want you to be brought up out of that immersion, out of that water, just as my son was brought up out of that, out of that grave to live. And I, I promise you that you will Walk in newness of life. And we say, it's really inconvenient to be baptized. I don't, I don't understand the connection, we say. If God wants to save somebody, he'll save somebody. Oh, we have our own ideas about so many things. And we get in the way. He says, I want you to be faithful. I want you to give your life to me. I want you to make sacrifices. I want you to love other people to the point where you, you neglect yourself out of love for other people. I want you to just put yourself on the altar and make your, your body a living sacrifice. And we say, I can't win that way. I can't give you the reins to my life. I, I have to stay in control, we say. God will make a way for you when you make room for him. The second part of peace. At death, the righteous enter a reward of rest. Now look at uh, verses 1 and 2. 
This is really where Isaiah begins. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. The concern here seems to be the same as that of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where the Thessalonians have heard about the return of Jesus and that at that time they will go to live with God. Yet many of their loved ones had passed away since they had heard that preaching and they had not gotten the full accounting of it. And they're afraid that their loved ones who have fallen asleep, who have died, will not be able to inherit the promises of the kingdom. And Paul says, no, those who have died, they shall be raised. And he encourages them with those words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The same concern seems to be here at the beginning of Isaiah 57. What has happened to the righteous who have passed away? And he says, they're better off. They've escaped the calamity and they are at peace. But you have to prepare for that peace. And you prepare for that peace after death by making peace in three ways here in this life. Number one, peace with God, of course. The last verse of this chapter says, There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. That's about peace with God. If you stay at war with God, of course, you're not going to have any peace after this life. When we're justified by, by faith, we have peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Secondly, inner peace. As Paul puts it, the peace that surpasses all understanding. Now, as a child of God, we gain that peace because in obeying the gospel and believing in Christ and trusting in the promises of God, we have to quote Hebrews 9.14, purified our conscience. Now, the conscience is maybe the most agonizing tool the devil has. And how can it be soothed? How can it be healed? Only by the blood of Christ. Then it can be purified. And as Christians, we have prayer. That's the context of the piece of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Inner peace. And then finally, to prepare for peace after death, you need to make peace with others. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. We learn to forgive as Christ forgave. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Now, think about that. Ephesians 4, 32. Even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And remember, Jesus, while they were sneering at him and cursing him, and as we said a moment ago, mocking him, making war with him, he triumphed in saying, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Are you bearing a grudge? Are you refusing mercy? Are you seeking vindication? You're destroying your peace on this side of eternity and on the other side of death. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. And so in order to have peace after death, you must prepare before death with making peace with God, finding inner peace through God, and making peace with one another. And having the peace of God, we know that at death we go to a far better place. Thirdly, in describing the condition of peace, he says in verses 16 through 19 that after death we will be healed and comforted. Let's read those verses, beginning verse 16. I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. God was angry with mankind because of sin. And using the language of verse 17, he struck humanity. Now that story is told starting in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and they opened the door of sin into the world and fell under the curse. And Adam was told, you are dust and to the dust you shall return. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. So God says, I was angry because of sin, and I struck my people down. Now that applies to all of us. All, we all live under the shade of death because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But death doesn't have to be eternal. You see, the hope here, the promise here is, I will heal. For those who make room for me in their life, I will heal them. And not even Isaiah fully understood what he meant by that. But what God is saying is, I'm bringing my son to earth. And he will die the death that mankind deserves. And he will rise as a sign that all those who follow him will rise in like manner. A resurrection of life. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. There is peace for those who follow God in life. There is peace even at death. And there is peace after death in the resurrection. And we've seen too many wars since Harding made his declaration before that procession of bodies during World War I. President of the United States stood there tears in his eyes and he said this must never happen again and we fought war after war after war after war and we fight today 
We fight against God. However, according to the Bible, Harding's statement was not wrong, it was just early. There will come a day when Christ returns and says, this will never happen again. And Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But here's the catch. Those on either side of the battlefield will remain as they are. Those arrayed against God will go to eternal punishment. Those who are on God's side will live with Him forever in eternal life. The time to sign up is now. The time to enlist is the present time. Because you don't know when death will take you from this world and remove your choice. At that point, your fate is sealed. So are you fighting with God or are you fighting against Him? Are you at war with Him or are you at peace with Him? And the answer to that question is really up to you. God has done everything He could do to save you from your sin. Will you continue down a path of self-destruction or will you have peace? Make that choice. Make it now as together we stand and sing.